G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. JC Ryle, he was the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool in the UK. Look at that beard, before his time. Um, Anyway, first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool. He was a gospel man. He was an evangelical through and through. Like he cared about the proclamation of the gospel. He cared about preaching. He cared about people hearing the message of the gospel spoken. And yet he could still say this. He said, a Christian is a walking sermon. They preach far more than a minister does for they preach all week long. Think about that. A Christian is a walking sermon. Think about your week. They preach far more than a minister does, for they preach all week long. Now, today, as we delve back into Malachi, that Old Testament prophet, perhaps the last of the Old Testament prophets, actually, um, I think it's no mistake that he's sort of been put at the end. Dating prophets is a little bit difficult, figuring out exactly when they were. But he's from about the 400s BC, And we pick it up from last week, last time, do you remember, where we saw that, yes, these are a people, these people of Israel, these are a people that God loves back there, Old Testament Israel, before the Lord Jesus came. They were His people. God knows them and God chose them and God loves them. He's delighted in them. He will love them to the very end. That was last week. And yet, this week, their lives through the week their lives, the lives of these historic people of God in those 400s BC, well, they were the kind of walking sermon that anyone ought to be ashamed to preach. That's the reality that uh, Pia just read to us that we're going to be hearing about today and it prompts the question for us, what kind of a sermon do our week-to-week lives proclaim of the Lord God of heaven to the watching people here on earth? Uh, Shall we pray as we come to God's Word to us through Malachi? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, this morning, please deal with us today according to your mercy, but also according to your holiness. In your mercy, we know that you've overlooked and you have forgiven our sin, but God, we know that that's not a license to get away with more. Instead, it's, it's a call to turn the ship around under the influence of your Spirit in us. Father, would you please help us as we explore this morning your holiness and your glory to confront what is lacking in our lives or plain lazy. And Father, may we desire what is lovely and wholesome and excellent. Fuel our passion, please, to live all week long a sermon that befits our Heavenly Father's saving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, As I said, please keep 1 Peter open in front of you. We'll come to Malachi in a moment, but let's first take a little look at those verses from Peter's letter, or some of them um, at least, because I'd like us to form a picture in our minds, if we could, a picture in our minds from these verses uh, that Peter wrote to his readers. Um, Peter describes... Well, what is it? Peter's describing a metaphorical building project, isn't he? The building venture of God in the world in these days, which ought to, I think, blow us away 
um, as we look on at what God's doing. So please piece together with me an image from these verses uh, for a moment. Let's just have a look at verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, uh, that is Jesus... Uh, as you come to him, O believing Christian, as you come to him, the living stone, you also, skipping, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. It's talking about us. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, now, I think thanks to Pink Floyd, we don't like being called another brick in the wall, but that's what it's saying, isn't it? Uh, we, we come to Jesus, the living stone, and we, like living stones, are being built into this magnificent thing that God is doing in the world. God is crafting us together, Christian, into a spiritual house, this uh, royal, this holy priesthood. Christians, that's us. And of course, it's a temple image, isn't it? Um, and he's saying, you, Christians, are the meeting place of God in this world, with this world, you, we are where God touches this planet in a very real, real way. It's where he lives among the human race with us as the very walls and staff and representatives of the Lord God of heaven here on earth. It's us, this building project of God, not the physical building, but us, the human beings, living stones. His place on the planet. So church, whether we are here on Sundays or wherever we are, roaming about the world through the week, our lives, God has holy, He has spiritual representatives living these exemplary presence of God kind of lives in the world throughout our week. And that task falls to us. What a building project. And so skip down to verse 9. Uh, verse 9, what we're skipping over there is unlike those who oppose Jesus, Peter says, verse 9, but you, Christians, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Skip down with me, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you remember Ryle there? A Christian is a walking sermon. They preach far more than a minister does for they preach all week long and I'd want to add all lifelong everywhere we go, everything that we do, this royal priesthood of God um, in the world. What a picture. Here is the dream, brothers and sisters. A priesthood praising the Lord God of heaven who has saved us, declaring what a great God He is. Gosh, He's good in the gospel. Uh, in word and in deed, living every single moment such that we point even hostile pagans, as it says there in verse 12 to the wonderful God that we found in Christ. What an image that is for us Christians to um, live in and live up to. Lives that look compelling, that have the feel of God about them, uh, that even our critics can't help but join the dots. Uh, gosh, I may not like them, but something heavenly, something the finger of God is going on in that person's life. I tell you what, I want to be one of those people <laughs> and I want to live amongst those kinds of people, a community like that. I see what God is building and I say, yes, I say, that is great. I say, it's fantastic. Let's go bring it on. I say, thank you, Jesus, because it's his work um, ultimately. But then, then, 
Now come back with me to Malachi, brothers and sisters. Have we got the image in mind from 1 Peter there, the dream? Come back with me to Malachi, please. Uh, Malachi, he tips a bucket of ice-cold reality over that little dream. Um, Sadly, Malachi paints a believable, yet crushingly, disappointingly realistic image of what has gone wrong with the Lord's people and uh, the Lord's beautiful building project among his people. If the dream shines out from the pen of Peter, well, the nightmare lurks in Malachi's message and that's what we're going to have to deal with um, today. It's, it's a putrid, nightmarish kind of thing. This morning, folks, we have to confront the demons of Malachi so that we can get on with pursuing the dream of, um, of Peter. Uh, and in, in my reading, there's, um, there's really three, three horrors lurking in Malachi's uh, nightmare here, lurking among the ruins of, of Malachi's priesthood. We'll try to cover them fairly quickly so that we can get back to pursuing the dream, um, as Peter puts it before us. And uh, let me give them to you. So pollution number one um, in, in Malachi's day amongst his priesthood way back when in the 400s BC, pollution number one, I reckon their life could be described like this, defile and denial. Here we go, uh, come with me um, from verse 6. So this is the kind of spirituality that cuts every corner that it possibly can and yet still bills as if it's given you the bells and whistles. Can't even admit that it's dodgy to the core. Have a look with me from verse 6. Uh, God speaking to his priesthood in the world back then and God said, a son honours his father and a servant his master... If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. I think in that last verse, he turns a bit cynical there, doesn't he actually? With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? So get this, just try and imagine, remember the priests and where they fit into Israelite society. So what's happening is instead of turning the Israelites back, as they come to the temple, as they come to the priesthood with their dodgy and blind and lame and stumbling and blemished um, animal sacrifices, instead of telling the Israelite who brings such an animal, go back, go back to your flock, I know you've got better than that. Instead of telling them, turn around, pick your best sheep or goat or whatever. You know, this is God that you're talking about. This sacrifice is supposed to be an emblem of, an emblem of your desire to come to Him, an emblem of your uh, um, desire to reconnect with God, to find forgiveness. It's an emblem of owning your guilt and sorrow, O worshipper, before the Lord God of heaven and earth in purity and righteousness. Instead, what's the phrase? These, these guardians of purity, these representatives of God, these bastions of, of uh, vibrant spiritual life. What's the phrase there? Verse 6 and 7, it's basically this, isn't it? Dash, she'll be right. 
Near enough is good enough. It's only God we're talking about after all. What is it there? Uh, And then they turn to God. How have we shown contempt for you? Verse 6. News to me. What's the big deal? How have we defiled you? Verse 7. Brothers and sisters, I actually think that litmus test there for us in verse 8, it could be a very helpful one in the way that we think about our devotion to God compared to the other things that we're devoted to in life. Uh, Would we try it on with the boss? That's what he's saying there, isn't it? This way that we're treating God. Verse 8, try offering them to your governor, you know, these blemished animals. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord God Almighty? We'll come back to that in a minute. But if I gave my boss or who are the other authority figures in your life, my dad, my spouse, um, whomever, the kind of dedication that I give to the Lord, would they be happy with that? We'll come back to that. Uh, Pollution number two, moving on quickly, pollution number two is where, it's where God's people, now it seems in the passage, they can only barely bring themselves to kind of give God the rubbish in their lives, the stuff that they didn't even want anyway and that they didn't even want for themselves. And then, on top of that, they whinge about it. Uh, Pollution number two is rubbish and resentment. Verse 10, let's pick it up there. God saying, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. There's the dream, isn't it? God still has the dream. God knows where it's going. But, verse 12, you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled. And of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it and then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." I reckon verse 13 says it all there, doesn't it? Verse 13, take take their spiritual temperature from verse 13. This is it. They are stone cold dead, (laughs) it seems to me. Verse 13, what a burden God has become to us. In fact, did you notice the animals in that verse? There's an extra word in there that wasn't in the um, the section just before. Um, You bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Just think about what the people are doing there for a second. Any one of you who has livestock or used to have livestock, you know what Malachi is saying here, don't you? Have a listen to this, actually, on that word injured. So injured, the Hebrew word, derives from the verb to steal. Since the other animals listed here are crippled and diseased, many scholars suggest that these injured or stolen animals have been violently stolen by wild animals... And recovered in an injured condition and then offered to the priests. The upshot here is you were going to put them down anyway. 
You wouldn't eat diseased sheep, you can't sell them. No one serves up lamb that's been taken by a wolf and you've just managed to get it back within an inch of its life. You're not going to serve that to your family. So Israelite spirituality, this little priesthood in the world before the nations that's supposed to be an emblem of God's beauty and magnificence and wonder and spectacularness in the world has slumped so low that God got the bits that they didn't want anyway and even then, oh, what a burden. Lastly, pollution number three. While the priests ought to be shining God's truth, like actually in words, uh, to a watching world, instead they can't even be bothered and it seems to have uh, fallen down into just jobs for the boys. Um, they're spreading lies about the Lord, pollution number three. And here I'll read this, um, this curse business up front, but the bit that I'm talking about, you'll see the pollution is really where it's their lips and instruction and truth uh, toward the end there. And now this admonition is for you, O priests... Chapter 2, verse uh, 2 now, if you do not listen and if you do not set up, set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I'll send a curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you haven't set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your uh, festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. And you know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue. Uh, what's to do with Levi? So Levi is kind of the ancestral priest, right? He's the tribe, the ancestor of the tribe from which all the priests come. So he's kind of like the archetypal, the, um, uh, the priest uh, that you kind of aspire to, um, I suppose. My covenant was with him, I'm in verse 5. My covenant was with him, Levi, a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him. Uh, this called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth... Men should seek instruction because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you haven't followed in my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. They're corrupt. I've turned aside. They don't care about the Lord's Word anymore. Now, folks, most of that, I think, most of that section is fairly straightforward. It's, I mean, it's ghastly, but it's fairly straightforward stuff. Do God's people, you know, we know it from our experience, sometimes in life, and especially with our words, spout all sorts of nonsense about God? Do we say things sometimes that flat, flatly contradict who God has said He is, who God has revealed He is? Uh, do we knowingly and publicly and obviously disregard the truth to suit ourselves at times or to get in with the right crowd or to get what we want out of life? Sadly, it is so. Yes, on all fronts amongst Christians the world over. Well, I think we've seen it. But the thing I would like to draw your attention to is actually there in verse 3. And frankly, it's a little bit uncomfortable for me to say it. 
Did you see verse 3 there? I'm I'm sure you did actually. Verse 3, I think, is there to help us feel the severity, the harshness, God's assessment of this. From a God's eye view, how does this all look? But the problem is, the translators of the NIV here, which is a translation that I absolutely love, they have deliberately toned it down and I think you're going to see why in a moment. Because When God's people are a hopeless mess of lazy, self-interested, disinterested, sloppy, truth-fudging, unrepentant so-and-sos, then this is the jolt that God would give them in the arm. These are the words that he would speak to him. So have a look at Malachi 2 verse 3 there. Uh, What does it say in your Bible? In mine it says, because of you you priests, I will rebuke your descendants, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. Except even that is not quite what it says. Uh, So here's one Australian scholar on verse 3, Anthony Pedersen is his name, so the Hebrew word for offal there in verse 3, he says, is variously translated dung or refuse. And there is a fine line to tread here, he says, as a translator. One must not domesticate the sharpness of God's Word simply to cater for contemporary cultural sensitivities. And and I'd argue that that's what the NIV has done in in translating it awful. Um, I think rather it's talking about what is inside those intestines, if you take my meaning, rather than uh, the intestines themselves. Uh, Pedersen goes on, he says, at the same time, using language that is uncouth may be just as unhelpful if it distracts from hearing the intent of God's Word. Different cultures will draw the line in different points, but in my Australian context, and he's in New South Wales, crap seems to capture the offensiveness without tipping too far into vulgarity. It's quite full-on to find that in God's Word, isn't it? Here's what God is saying through Malachi when His people couldn't give a hoot for him, weren't interested in hearing or speaking his word anymore and when the glory of God, which ought to have been shining out from them to the nations around them so that the world could see who God is and all that he'd done, had become a hassle. It had become a burden. What a jolly nuisance God is. They'd sooner be rid of it. So here's um, Pedersen's translation of verse 3. And I think he's bang on in terms of translation and I think his read of Australian culture um, is a pretty good one here, though it is sharp language. Verse 3, look, I will rebuke your offering and I will splatter crap on your faces, the crap of your festivals, then he will carry you to it. Um, Carry you to it as in chuck you on the garbage tip where you belong, O priests throw you in the sewage, the steaming, heaving garbage dunk. For you, O emblems of purity and cleanliness, the very hope of mankind's communion with God, that is where you belong and that is what God says when his priests have lost the plot. Now, the trouble for us is, as modern readers of Malachi, the trouble for us is, as we hear this dream of a priesthood and as we hear the reality and what it was in Malachi's day, the problem is we've tried to be the priesthood of the dreams of God's Word. 
those seasons of genuine enthusiasm, of purity, of maintaining godliness to a very high standard, they come along in life and then they fade away or come crashing down. Our seasons of going well and going strong in the Lord, they come for a time and we feel like we're kicking goals and then they come crashing down. And we're back in the mess. And we feel we can identify more with those who feel the hassle of God's word on us than those who are emblems of God to the world. The trouble is we've tried and we know in our own experience we've stumbled more than once, more than we care to admit, probably even more than we know. Brothers and sisters, who among us hasn't been guilty of a half-hearted, reluctant, two-faced, lackadaisical spiritual life, which onlookers would be baffled as to any claim to the activity and presence of God in our very lives? When we put less effort into prayer than we do into our nine-to-fives, when we put less thought into how to get sin out of our lives than how to get red wine out of the carpet or how to boot the yellow team out of the local Pokemon gym. There's one right here in case you don't know that, but if you're playing it now, that would be a bad move. When we put less care toward helping those who are struggling in their faith amongst us, less care into that than we do into sticking to our diet, when we put less devotion into transforming our character after the pattern of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, transforming my soul through meditation on God's word than into transforming my sporting skills or my body or my test scores or listening to every word that falls from the mouth of my coach or my dad or my teacher or that person whom I rather fancy. To whom are we most attentive in our lives? How attentive are we to God? Would your governor accept such an offering? When we know what God's Word says, but we know what we want. Oh, what a burden, we complain. When I'm more enamoured with how I'm coming across, perhaps in the classroom or amongst my pals or my mates, more concerned, more enamoured with how I'm coming across than I'm concerned with fidelity to the Lord God of heaven and earth whose glorious gospel needs to be heard in the world by the lost and even the lost amongst my classmates and my pals and my friends. Now, I think the pollution hasn't left us, my dear friends, and I think the glory of the Lord, well, if the glory of the Lord on earth depended on us, (laughs) it would be a pretty sad dream in the end. But the great news is, It doesn't, not in the end. That I am not, that you are not, that the Christian church is not in itself the hope of the saving glory of God in the world. And I want to say that is good news. When I think about me, when I think about the world around us, would you please come back with me to 1 Peter? Uh, I just want to show us five words in 1 Peter, folks. Although it'll take me a little bit of waffling to do it. Five words, just a phrase... And I think these five words are the best news ever for people who have tried to be that perfect priesthood and failed and tried again and fallen down. Here are the five words. We probably missed them before, actually, because we were so caught up in painting that picture of the um, you know, glorious priesthood of God in the world amongst us, the splendour of his name and wonder and magnificence amongst his people. Here it is, five words right at the beginning of the passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Have you got it there? 
as you come to him. Him. As you come to him. That is, as you come to Christ. Those are the five words. That is the phrase. Uh, And that, by the way, is how we can bear to live for God in a world, knowing that we're pretty shonky ambassadors much of the time. That it's as we come to him, to Jesus, that we're being made into this um, wonderful project of God in the world. Because in the end, it's not about how great we are, how much we have got it together. It's not as if we think that we're the finished product either, but we know we're on the way. And what a great thing it is that we are on the way. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, verse 5, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, on the one hand, I think it's quite striking that God even wants us involved in the building project. But gosh, I'm glad he is. As we come to Jesus, we are part of God's building project um, in the world to display his glory among the nations. I think it's kind of striking that God even wants us to be part of showing off his gospel to the world. And yet look how closely God wants us connected with Jesus um, in that passage. It's as you come to the living stone that you, that we are being built as living stones As well, uh, Karen Jobes notices this. She says, in Peter's imagery here, in Peter's imagery, Christ is included in the spiritual temple alongside believers. But as the first, Christ is the foundational, first and preeminent stone in the new temple, a stone that holds a unique place. Christ is the foundation stone of this new temple. Apart from him, the new temple would not exist. And so, brothers and sisters, let's remember the dream from Peter, the dream to which God's called us, of God's priests to the world um, in Christ, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They may see, in the words of Malachi, that there is a great king and his name will be great among the nations. So let's remember the dream, let's realise the rot within, the reluctant, half-hearted, polluted people that we are and let's repent and find relief in the gospel of Christ. And lastly though, let's renew our heart, not just for me and Jesus but for Jesus' glory to a watching world. This is his building project for his glory out there and he's involved us in it along with the Lord Jesus Christ. How about we pray um, to that end? Yes, Lord God of heaven, we pray that your name may be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we ask that your name would be hallowed among us and in our hearts, that your will would be done right here in us as it is in heaven. We know that we serve the Lord God of heaven and earth, whose name is great among the nations. And Father, may we learn to see not just the Lord Jesus as he is isolated from this world, but may we learn to see him 
and ourselves in the context of what you're trying to do, reach a world that is lost and have many come to him. May the world, Father, see in us not a temple to ourselves, but a temple to the great Lord God of heaven and earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.